I should have known it was going to be a problem today. Like, so here's the thing. When somebody books an appointment, whether it's a free appointment, whether it's a half hour, an hour, whether it's book marketing, whether it's coaching, whether it's help me edit a thing, whatever the hell it is, I get three notifications. I get an email, I get a text message, and I get a notification in the app that somebody has booked something. And primarily that's A, to keep me on track, B, help me handle the accounting, and C, just to let me know what's going on. Because otherwise I will sit here and not really pay attention to anything until like the notification comes up two minutes before I start and then I'm unprepared. And when the days get really busy, I tend to not really notice. You ever have one of those days where your phone just blows up with a million notifications and most of them are stupid, like sales for this and promos for that, and here's another email about yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just you just sort of feel like, oh, whatever, I'll just, I'll, it's whatever, it's fine. So today, for instance, I've got appointments pretty much until like 8 p.m. Eastern. That's a 12-hour workday. What the hell was I thinking? Why didn't I email any one of these people and be like, hey, do you want to, do you want to like not, not do this today? Could we do this tomorrow? Because I still have another stream after this. Like, oh boy, today's a hell of a busy day. So yeah, oh, if I sound a little tired, it's because I've been going great guns for, you know, five hours already and I got six six ish more to go yeah gonna be a good day gonna be a good chat got some great questions hopefully um it will help you write better do better be better feel better and i look forward to helping you get where you want to go and do your creative thing but for first uh we have to start the show so let's start the show all right just remember what i've taught you So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, enthusiasts, scheduling experts, anybody who's eating lunch not at their desk, anybody who eats lunch at their desk but tries really hard not to spill anything, people who are waiting ridiculously long for things, anybody who's ever uh, constantly refreshed the delivery page for anything they ever get dropped off to their home. People who notice that the majority of the cables and cords for all their stuff is black and therefore it is impossible to figure out what's connected to what without a piece of tape on it. Anybody who's ever had to look for a pen that they swear they just had in their hand two seconds ago. And most importantly, the comrades. Hi, I'm John. 
It's my job to help you write better. And this is the Writer's Chat for October the 17th. I want to make sure I got the date right. I've been staring at it all day. So, of course, yes, it is the 17th. And if you don't know what this is, the Writer's Chat is your place to get answers to whatever questions you have about writing and editing and publishing and marketing and traditional publishing and self-publishing and book covers and agents and anything writing anywhere. It doesn't have to be a book. It could be a screenplay. It could be a role-playing game. It could be a this. It could be a that. If it's creative, chances are I will talk about it. And I've got 13 questions today from loads of different book people for loads of different book stuff, plus whatever the questions uh, those people in chat ask. Hi, chat. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Plus, whatever questions they have. And we'll try and get some stuff done and learn some stuff along the way. So, uh, without a sponsor today, without any kind of extra ad to do, how about we get started with our first question? Question number one. What's the easiest way to make the transition from the planning stage to the writing stage. Now, maybe you would not be surprised the number of times I hear some variation of this question because the answer you'd think is very simple. You just start writing. That should be how you answer this. And on one level, you'd be right. Yes, the thing to do, the easiest way to make the transition from planning to writing is pick a spot and start writing. It doesn't need to be the beginning. It could be the end. You could write the climax first. Who's going to know? Who's going to care? Because at the end of the day, eventually, the whole manuscript gets written. Great. Yay. But how you go about doing it, that's up to you. But that's, while not a bad answer, it's a little superficial. And if you know me, you know I want to dig a little deeper wherever I can. So the easiest way, actually, to transition from planning to writing is to do a pre-writing step to kind of bridge the gap better between what you're planning and what you're writing. And that's to pick your three favorite starting spots. If you could start anywhere in the story, where would you start? Pick three. Doesn't have to be the beginning. You want to start in chapter six because it has that really fun scene. You want to start in chapter 22 because that's where the big reveal or the twist happens. You want to write the conclusion first. You want to wrap everything up and then work backwards. That's up to you. But if you pick and choose and prioritize where you want to start because you want to start there, rather than trying to like stare at the blank page and telepathically will it into that really good shape, you might surprise yourself with how well it goes. The difficulty in planning to writing usually comes from paralysis, usually comes from either wondering where to start, like where's best, I'm making air quotes, or it comes down to, I don't know, I'll just start anywhere, but I don't know if it's any good and I want to make sure it has to be good and I better work on the beginning because that's where all stories begin. And then they start overthinking things and it becomes a whole big giant mess and it doesn't really matter. Yes, you're going to need to write a beginning, a climax, a conclusion, an arc, all that stuff. You're going to need to get it done. But it does not have to happen in order. Sure, you might start immediately talking to me and telling me, oh yeah, but if I start skipping around, it's going to leave holes. Yep, it's going to leave holes that you're going to have to fill. It's not a bad thing to have holes in your story where you're going to have to go back and write something in. That's, that's not a sign of failing. That's not a problem. That's just a different way of constructing the overall finished thing. 
But usually you want to capitalize and start that writing stage with as much, not necessarily like excitement and urgency because it's, it's, it's a big deal, but it's not like a critical, like, oh my God, I only have 10 seconds to do it. Big deal. You want to do it from a position where you feel enthusiastic, where you feel like I, I got a couple good options here and then just pick one because they all got to get done. So they're all relatively equal in terms of how critical they are. So just pick one. You're not going to pick the wrong choice because, well, they all have to happen. So you're just picking whatever one sounds exciting at the time and going forward or backwards from there. On we go. Question two. When is the best place to bring up your story's theme? Here's how this question came about. I was talking to somebody. Oh, gosh. Was it a week ago? I want to say it was a week ago. And in like the first page couple sentences in they outright say their theme i don't know why they didn't need to and when i asked hey what's the sentence doing uh, i was told that's because that's my theme let's be let's be very very clear about what matters here this is not school you do not have to state your topic sentence at the beginning of a paragraph you don't have to set us up in like the fewest number of words possible as fast as possible. And you generally don't want to state your theme outright in your first like, oh, I don't know, 10 pages. Because themes, well, they're supposed to be subtle. They're supposed to be the cumulative conclusion. I read this whole thing and this is what I can summarize and this is what I can take away from it. If you feel you have to state your theme outright, and I'm not talking about like I have a character say a thing about family because my whole story is about family and I'm kind of being clever with it. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about inelegantly and poorly developing your theme by just writing it down in exposition. Yeah, there's a time and a place to do that sort of thing in some forms of construction with some voice, with some style to it. But if you're thinking that theme, much like character description or some kind of way to introduce a character or the description of the car or something has a specific place, like this is the moment where I bring up the theme explicitly, you're wrong. It, there, there isn't a place. It's not like if you put your theme in your first sentence or your fifth sentence, that's better than putting it in your tenth sentence or your fourth chapter. Theme is derived more than stated it's assumed to exist and assumed to be there and what you need to do is have a story that validates it and verifies its existence without seeing it it's it's like the wind we 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 don't see wind but we see leaves moving and we go ah wind it's we see this story we don't see the theme it's not like a unit of of dust particle or something, you know, in motion, but we see the effects of the theme because that's what the story is about. So the best place to bring your story's theme up is anywhere. But you don't want to just throw that thing in here like it's the topic sentence of a child's paragraph. You don't want to just get it out on page one and then never really talk about it again because I don't know if you know this, you've got several tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand words left to write. Most people aren't going to remember your second sentence. So 
rather than shoehorn it in or try to make it very overt because I guess you think your reader is stupid, um, don't do that. Just, just be better. Just be more polished, be more cohesive, and let the theme be the cumulative effect of having everybody read your story as opposed to like being able to identify, this is the inciting incident. Push your glasses up on your nose. Try not to get shoved in a locker at school. This is the climax. This is the anti-climax. This is the theme sentence. Um, no one cares. That's, that's not how this works. This isn't like a test where we have to circle the right answers so that we get a pat on the head. Your theme is expressed across the breadth of your story. Good question. On we go. Question number three. How do I know what to ask for from a beta reader? Here's the setup. You want to ask your beta readers to pay attention to certain stuff. You just don't want to hand your beta reader a book and say, read this. Tell me what you think. Because that's, that's intimidating. It's unclear. Because a beta reader is there to help you. They're reading it before everybody else does to give you some kind of feedback or some kind of sense of the story as to how a consumer will later check it out. They're not copy editing. They shouldn't be copy editing. They're not, you know, um, proofreading or doing any sort of editorial or revision task because that's what other jobs are for. A beta reader's job is to be a customer before the customers get it. And you want to give them something to focus on. I usually tell clients that when you're engaging with your beta readers, have a Google form ready. Have some kind of questionnaire ready. It doesn't need to be long. Two questions, three questions maybe, five maybe. You know, it doesn't need to be like this, here's 45 questions. It can just be a few things. You know, what stood out to you? What was your favorite scene? What was your least favorite scene? Was there anything confusing about character development? You know, ask them something specific that you have a concern about, that you're worried about, that matters to you. You, you don't know if you wrote a great climax. Ask them questions about the climax so they pay attention to it. You're worried that, you know, naming your character Susan is not a great name. Ask them about it. Their job is to provide feedback and rather than just say, it's nice, and then move on because... Being told it's nice is functionally useless for us. Ask them about specifics. Have things in mind. How do you know? Look at where you feel weakest. You know your work. You know how you write. You know what you feel you're on a shaky ground with. That's where you start. But because we don't only want to like have them generate negative things that are going to stress you out or freak you out or whatever... We want to also add, you know, bring in some positives from them. What were scenes you liked? What was your favorite line of dialogue? Paraphrase it. You don't have to quote it exactly. You know, what was your favorite moment with the dog? What was your favorite, you know, meal everybody shared? You can ask for positives so that you get this tempered balance of, well, here's the problem area as you asked me to pay attention to it, but also here's what you did well. They're not... They should not be expected, beta readers should not be expected to give like high-level, academic-level commentary. Ah, you know, your, your antecedents were all incorrect and your use of punctuation allowed for a lack of utility and I believe you were reducing your agency exponentially over the course of your secondary character arc. Like we're not expecting jargon fest 9000 from our beta readers. We want human being experience and human being exposure to our work 
just to get a sense of how it would go if it went out into the world as is. And then we can make changes and, and, and fiddle with things as needed. But you're going to build that from places where, A, you feel you need help, places you're unsure of, and B, positives gained from them and the synthesis of those two things to help you create a better book going forward. That's how you know what to ask for. Use a Google form. Write questions. If you don't want to use Google, that's fine. Have an email with a couple questions in it. Just some, some form of structure beyond just hurling a file at them and saying, read it. Do something with it. Ask for better help. And on we go. Are there any questions from anybody in chat while I open my, what is this, my third bottle of water? In the last two hours, I've just been, oh, man, I've been talking and talking and talking all day with still more to come. Questions, anybody? Otherwise, we're going to keep moving, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Question number four. How does a beta reader differ from an ARC reader? Do we know what an ARC is? An ARC? That's an advanced reader copy. That is a printed version of the book that's, you know, barring a few small changes, usually it gets a blurb put on it or some more technical information like the barcode and that stuff. That's the book, as you can imagine it, going out into the world. Maybe that's a digital file. Maybe that's a physical print copy. Doesn't really matter. An arc's an arc. You have arc readers and you have beta readers. Beta readers, like we just talked about with the previous question, are giving you a sense of the story before it goes forward. Arc readers are giving you a sense of the book, the product, before it moves forward. Now, that product contains the story, sure, but it also has extra stuff. It's the story plus the covers plus the blurb. And because it's an expansion on just the content, because you're giving them more stuff, they have still the same sort of responsibility. You can use them as beta readers again, or now they're, I guess, double secret beta readers because they can go through the story one more time. But now you can also get their impressions on the cover. You can get their impressions on the blurb as well, the back cover text. Overall, the combination of beta readers and arc readers, and honestly, it's okay if they're the same people. You know, you're still going to compensate them for their labor. You're still going to, like, pay them some reasonable amount of money. You're still going to give a shit about them. You're not just going to hand them a thing and say thanks and then walk away or, you know, I'll give you credit in the book. What the fuck are they going to do with credit? Like, that's nice, but they also spent, you know, an evening with your stuff Maybe, maybe, maybe give them a dollar or two. What's wrong with that? But, well, more than a dollar. Give them at least like 20 a piece. Come on. Like, be serious about this. You're being serious about your craft. They're being serious and helping you out. Could, could we all just help everybody out here? But the fundamental difference here is the arc is dealing with the thing as a product and the beta is dealing with just the story. One is not better than the other. They're just different. Does that make sense? You need them both. You do. You can get away with like a single beta reader and a single arc reader if you have to. But 
you do need them. They, they perform a critical role in the development production process. But one's book and one's story. They can overlap in terms of, you know, like you can ask the same questions of an ARC reader that you did a beta reader, but you still need them both. On we go. Question five. What's the value in being active on social media if I'm getting one, maybe one, or two responses at most? This has come up a lot this week. This has come up a lot this week where people have been, they've been putting stuff out. They've been writing tweets. They've been making Facebook posts. They've been putting out little things in newsletters and all this stuff. And because within like a very, very unreal, un, unrealistic short period of time, like I'm going to post a thing at one o'clock. And if by three o'clock I don't have 200 people, I will have failed. And that's just dumb. Like, I don't know how to tell you this. That's unrealistic and stupid. If you don't have an audience of 200 active and engaged people, why would you think randomly 200 people are just going to like find your stuff? You're going to say, oh, you're going to, I, I, okay, you're going to say the algorithm. It's the algorithm, John. If the algorithm isn't popularizing you because of, you know, timely topic or engaging thumbnail or salacious title or whatever the hell else, why do you have this unrealistic expectation as to how quickly people should be engaging and honestly even if they did engage what are you going to do are you going to sit there and reply to 200 comments in your youtube video you better because that's the only way you're going to maintain those 200 people otherwise it's a a one and done kind of situation the value of activity in social media is that you're tilling your field so it can grow I, I don't know anything other than anything better than a gardening metaphor for this. You don't always watch the plant grow. Sometimes it grows under the soil and you can't see it. The roots strengthen, lengthen, and and grow in number. But you're you're expecting like I put this fucking seed in the ground, why is it not producing fruit? Because it's not there yet. Because it takes time because you have to care about it. You can't just drop a seed in the hole, you know, drop a seed, kick some dirt over it, maybe put some water on it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not really a thing there. You have to tend it. You have to care. If you're getting one or two responses at most, chances are you need to be more aggressive. You need to not be more aggressive with the audience you have, but go out and develop the audience you want. Go say more. Use it more. Engage with people more. Different people and more frequently. And maybe you'll get to two or three. And then maybe you'll get to five. And maybe you'll get to whomever. But the value in your activity is because this is part of what helps grow. If you're just active to two people over and over and over again, well, then you've got an audience of two and they're very stable, which is great. But if you are doing that while also maintaining this strange delusion that because it's two and not 200, you have categorically failed and you have to throw your hands up and dramatically stomp off, um, just do everybody a favor and don't come back. Like, I don't know how else to tell you this. If you're so limited 
in your understanding of what success is and so unwilling to see it as a process rather than a final destination and so interested in being big and dramatic about it, go work on your fucking shit. Like go, go be less dramatic. No, no one gives a shit. It's not their fault that you're unwilling to do the things uh, that would necessitate and qualify growth. If you're getting one or two responses and you're dissatisfied, do more and do better, okay? The value is that it helps you build customers, and it takes time, more than two hours after you post. Time, months, years. The general rule of thumb, you're, a, you're an overnight success after about 10 years. And if you can't develop the patience, how serious are you about this, really? I'm going to go answer this question in chat because it's really good. Hi, hope you're well. Yes, I'm, I'm uh, other than just doing a lot of talking today, I'm doing great. So with every sentence is a camera, yes, every sentence is a camera. How would you rate bokeh? Bokeh is, you know that thing when you look at a video and the background's kind of blurry, but like the front of the thing, the front, the foreground is really, really sharp and that, that background blur effect kind of diffuses light and makes everything in the front stand out. How would you write it? What a brilliant question. Here's how you would. We've talked in the past about kickouts, right? We've talked about how we, when we're, we're setting up a scene and we're detailing like pay attention to this, this, and this, three things up front. And then every once in a while we bring up some little small detail like while we're paying attention to character A, talking to B about topic C, or while the two people are sitting at the table, we kick out to like a car driving by so that we give a sense of the world, right? That's not bokeh. Bokeh is the idea that we are going to just randomly, when we set up the scene or in those moments in between the points we want to pay attention to, we give some broad, not necessarily hypercritical description of the background. So if we have... A, talking to B at a table. That's our foreground. And we're describing that. We want the reader to focus there and pay attention. We could kick out to that car. We could kick out to a dog barking or birds in the trees. And we could focus the reader's attention just for one second elsewhere so that we give the sense of depth and breadth beyond just, hey, pay attention to these two people talking. But that background detail, the, the little blur, the smaller cinemagraphic, Cinematographic? Cinematographic. That's the word I want to use. The fancy camera move shit. Um, the details at that level we would do by just highlighting what's in the background. A is talking to B. We're paying attention there. Passing exposition sentence about the room felt cold. We don't want to call attention to the tree, you know, blowing outside but we we call it windy it's a it's called a reduced rather than specific detail a specific detail is pay attention to this thing the tree outside rustles that's a kick out to the tree we're paying attention to the tree but if we just call it windy that's bokeh more or less it's not called bokeh bokeh is just the visual description we're, we're looking at sort of lighter end detail in the background of exposition. So small sentences, small details, not hyper-focused on, but part of the overall composition that you, the author, want us to know while describing stuff. That's how you do bokeh. What a great question. Thank you. Because otherwise I was going to complain more about social media. Yeah, the reduced detail. 
That's that's the way to go. You're going to get too hung up on the kickout. Yeah, most people do. But remember that the point of a kickout when we're describing a specific thing independent and separate from the main stuff, the point of that is to give context. You know, so if if because we're going to talk about it and then we're going to go back to where we were. It's an, oh, by the way, this is also happening. Or put this, whatever the thing is, in your head, in your visual, but then come over here. It's it's like when two people are, again, we'll use two people talking because that's a really great way of like picturing something, you know, very, very viscerally. Two people are talking and they both, they, there's a lull in the conversation. They both look out the window. We detail what they see out the window and then we come back to the conversation we're only doing it for one sentence because we need a moment to let the previous context settle so we can develop and go forward. Don't get hung up on the amount of adjective or the amount of narrative weight. Like you don't have to spend like, I have to find the best way to talk about the blue jay outside. Nah, it's a bird. Say there's a bird and off we go. If you really want to like drill down on the bird because you're all about birds that's fine, but understand that the more attention you pull to a thing away from our main topics, the greater you're going to have to wrestle the control back for the reader because all of a sudden you stop talking about a bird and you gave it such a level of detail, the reader's going to assume it was important. Just reduce the detail, put it in there, and keep us moving. Over time, through drafting, this will smooth out and make sense. But yeah, getting hung up on it absolutely happens because you're trying to be subtle. You're trying to be delicate. I just want to mention this thing. And you end up talking about it so much that holy shit. Now, like I've steered the whole paragraph around the damn bird outside. And, and the fix for that is to just say it one way off you go. We're done. Come back. Practice, practice, practice. Great question. On we go. Question number six, got any encouragement for a first-time author who still isn't done their book? I should point out that in the original question, still was in all caps and italicized. And yeah, I do. I have plenty of encouragement for those first-time authors who aren't done but who want to be done because that's my bread and butter. That's my wheelhouse. I, I have more clients who are first-time authors trying to get published despite frustration, despite fear, than I have clients who have published in the past and who have come back trying to grow or push themselves. I'm okay with that. I would love for everybody to be published so that we can all, you know, rising tide, lift boats, keep moving forward. But this is where we seem to be at, and this is where people need some help right now, so this is where I'm at. So first-time author, still not done your book? What's the rush? Why are you rushing? Why is it so important to you to rush. If you're about to answer that question and go, yeah, well, I'm writing this thing and I don't want it to be like not popular when I'm writing. If you're trying to find a, a delicate way of telling me that you're, you're following a trend and you're worried the trend is going to burn out. Hey, the trend is going to burn out. That's not necessarily a bad thing because you can still write the book, even though it's from an old dead trend. Just understand that you got to write the book. You're going to lose some of that, marketing urgency, but there's other ways to develop marketing strategies. It doesn't always need to be urgent. If you're about to tell me that you expect more of yourself 
that you used to, whatever used to means, write faster and write more often. Yeah, well, I used to also be like twice the body weight I am now. And I used to also do a lot of drugs. And I used to like not own as many cats as I do. And things change. Things change. And if you try to keep holding yourself now to the to the structure you were before, you're almost always going to be disappointed. Because things change. And some of it's not for the better and some of it is for the better. And the trick is figuring out which is which and doing something about it. Why are you rushing? Why does time matter in this? Because you have an expectation that you're supposed to be a better author? That if you were a better, whatever better means author, you'd be writing faster? Do you think anybody cares? Do you think anybody goes around going, I wonder how many days it took to write this book? And, you know, gosh, I, a fancy publisher in John's example, would have given you $10,000 more if you wrote it in 31 days, not 32. Nobody does that. Nobody cares. That's not a thing. Better quality writing. Writing of a high level of craft, writing with passion, writing with strength, writing from a decisive position, works independent of time. It doesn't matter how long you've been writing it. If you're dissatisfied with the rate of writing or your ability to schedule your time or you're frustrated about your discipline because you keep finding reasons not to write or you keep finding reasons to bail at the first opportunity, like, I wrote 10 words, I better go check the laundry, and then you don't come back to the monitor for like, three days. Those are issues beyond just, I don't like my story or I'm not quite sure what to do in this chapter. Sure. That could be part of it. Absolutely. But if you consistently find reasons to not write, my question is going to be, do you want to be a writer? Because chances are some people don't. They like the idea. They like the fantasy, but when it was fun and it was low stakes and I was just writing and whatever, man, like I didn't even think twice about publishing and I, I was just writing to write because I loved it. And then all of a sudden somebody said like, you should publish this and it became a job. It became an effort and then it wasn't fun anymore. So you don't want to do it so much anymore. You know how much that happens? Like constantly, constantly. What you have to do in that case isn't toil away and treat this job, the job of being a full-time author, with the same level of give-a-shitness that you give your day job, where you have that shitty boss and you have that commute and you deal with, like, you know, shitty working conditions because you're exploited for your labor no matter what you do because capitalism is killing us. You know, all that shit. You don't have to, just because that job sucks, and I'm going to tell you, that job probably sucks. Um, just because that sucks doesn't mean this job has to suck. And you don't have to approach it the same way. And you know how tired you are at the end of a work day? Where you come home from your day job and you just want to sit down and kind of like stare at a screen and be very impassive. And maybe, yeah, you should get up and do the dishes. And maybe, yeah, you should go take a shower. And maybe, yeah, maybe try to have a social life. Maybe if you can afford it. That's not necessarily always true for writing. Just because one job blows ass doesn't mean all of them do. If you're worried about time, you can change your time. You can build a better writing schedule, a more flexible writing schedule, something less time per instance, but more instances. 
20 minutes a day is a lot less stressful than two hours every weekend where you have to sit and force it. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're frustrated that you don't know what your book's going to do, you don't know how to like make decisions. So the book goes everywhere and all of a sudden you've written like a hundred thousand words and the whole book's only supposed to be like 70, but you keep writing and next thing you know, you break 200,000 or 300,000 or 500,000 because you just don't know when to stop. That's a different issue. And if that's the case and you've just been writing and writing and writing, first of all, you're never going to be able to catch yourself because you're enabling yourself to keep, you know, keep spooling up. You're going to need to go get help. The solution there is to work backwards and outline and be decisive and trim things away, which is not what I would expect somebody to do when they feel frustrated or guilty already. That's like an, you bring in an outside person for that. Like me, that's my job. But the, the point is, if you're feeling discouraged, chances are it's because of how you're approaching it and what you're expecting of yourself. And then after you deal with both of those two things, then you go look at the production you're doing. Somewhere in the combination of those three, or more likely two out of those three, you'll find your answers as to where your satisfaction is, could be, should be, and needs to be, so that you can bring your focus and discipline along to the party and really make something of it. Don't give up. At no point in this whole thing did I say give up unless... You need to have that moment with yourself where you're happier about the fantasy or the daydream of being a hyper-successful author and the workload isn't for you. You'll know pretty quick. Like, you'll feel that. That'll resonate with you at a deeper level than just like, yeah, I, I want to take a week off. That's not the same thing. I mean, like, you'll know in your, you'll know in your gut if you're not supposed to be doing this in the first place. You just got to trust yourself on that one. But by and large, most people, it's not a matter of they shouldn't be writing at all. It's that they shouldn't be writing with the toolkit they have. It's way too many expectations, way, way too much stuff in their head about how things are supposed to be and how things need to be and way too much like external input, like way they've absorbed so much social media writing advice that's all garbage or they've just picked up a ton of bad habits and they don't they, they're not in a position to change those habits because they justify them. They're too busy making excuses than they are making progress. And all of that is just, it's the writer's toolkit, but beyond, it's not just like, this is how a comma works. It's the writer's toolkit in the sense of like, this is how we approach writing. This is what we believe art is. This is what we believe we do this for. This is how we connect to people. These are bigger conceptual tools beyond just this is an action sentence this is an interrogatory sentence and they're they're treated equitably you treat those tools the same as you would productive tools and you end up although it might take more time and you might feel embarrassed because you have to strip away some of the shit you've packed in your head to get to the good stuff you will end up writing better overall it just takes time don't rush it and please, if you're feeling frustrated hearing this, if you're somebody who's like, God, why am I not done yet? Seriously, take 20 minutes sometimes. Take a lunch break. Take an evening. Head over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. Sign up for a free appointment. It's, 
half an hour. Sometimes it's less. Sometimes it's five minutes because it's just on the phone real quick or it's a Zoom thing or whatever. Or you can catch me on Discord and I'll talk and it'll be fine. But ask for help. You don't have to do this alone. Don't give up. Keep going. And on we go. Any other questions from anybody in chat? I should point out yet again, I have no idea how many people are here because the little indicator for people um, just says X. So I don't know if that's like a Roman numeral. Roman numeral? A Roman numeral and there are 10 of you in here. Or if it's just like, I don't know. I am going to put more water in my face though. And then we shall march on. Shall we keep going? Let's keep going. Question seven. What should I do if I feel discouraged by so many writers bragging about their accomplishments? I'm really hanging up on the word bragging here because if these are people who just love to tell you how, how successful they are, they can't shut up about it. Even if they couch it in like, oh my God, I'm so lucky or, you know, whatever other very saccharine tooth rotting sweet shit it is. It can still, it can still be bragging. They're just rubbing it in the, you know, like they can't stop talking about it. Not because it's a great shock, but because holy shit, they're just better than you. Don't hang out with those people. Don't, don't engage with them. You're not going to change their mind. They're just around to make you feel like shit and you don't have to sit there and take it. So, let that be item number one. You don't have to stick around to that. I understand that they're members of a community. They're probably real vocal, but I bet they're probably real annoying too. If, however, you are discouraged consistently by more than just one person who may or may not be an asshole, you're on the regular frustrated by everybody else and all their stuff. Like me, I am somebody who is frequently discouraged by other people talking about like, hey, look at this boat I just bought. Hey, here we are on vacation. Here's this going on. Here's that going on. Here's, you know, child number three I have. Here's, you know, my little guy is now playing soccer at a, you know, quasi pro level. And I just feel old and alone and tired. That's me. I, I get this question. I feel this question like deep in the marrow of me. And here's what you do. You try not to weigh your failures against their successes. And you try not to look and see what you don't have when you get caught up in seeing what they do have. Because they're doing whatever and they're having done whatever and they're possessing whatever does not, does not, does not diminish, devalue, erase, or silence anything you are doing and anything you have done. They're not comparable because that's them and that's them doing them. And while that might be some stuff you would like, like they seem to have more money than you do. They seem to be happier. Maybe they are, but it's also social media. So maybe they're full of shit, but their life is theirs and yours is yours. And if seeing what they can do is going to, positively inspire you like i didn't realize you could do that sort of thing i want to give that a try 
Like, look at them running a marathon. I'd like to try running a marathon. John would not like to try running a marathon. This is an example. But, like, if you're seeing somebody and you're like, I want to give that a shot, then pursue it for you, not because you want to defeat them in some kind of strange competition. Because as I keep telling myself every day when I look at Facebook and I see all the people I went to school with who are on, you know, house number two or three or vacation 45 or marriage for 20 years or this, that, and the other thing, um, I didn't like those people in high school. I maybe would like them now. Some of them I would not. Their politics are shit and atrocious and maybe their kids are awful. But, like, they're doing them. And... I, they don't talk to me. Like, they don't randomly drop me a note like, hey, man, how you doing? Good to see you. Hope your streams are going real well. They don't say shit to me. So if they don't say shit to me and I don't go out of my way to talk to them because, you know, they were kind of shitty 30 years ago. They're still shitty now. Um, Why would it matter what they do? Why do I have to? Here's the question. Why do I have to hurt myself and bring myself down? Is it just because I'm mad that, you know, shit didn't go my way, that I didn't get this and I didn't do that and I want to just, like, dig the knife in a little bit? Why do we do that? How does that help? Why? That just sounds stupid when I say it like that. If you feel discouraged, please understand that you don't have to plug in and feed that. Your accomplishments are yours, and I bet you can find some. Now, they might not be the same accomplishment. Well, they're published. They got an advance. They have a pimp who's exploiting their labor and taking 10 to 20% of their work. Good for them. You got up out of bed today. Have you seen the civilization we're in? It kind of fucking sucks. You got up today. I'm sober today. It's a thing. It counts. It's a pretty huge accomplishment. I'm not dead yet. That's a significant accomplishment, but we don't value that the same. Why don't we value that the same? Capitalism, but that's a different... We'll talk, That'll probably come up in the stream this evening for sure because I'll be good and cranky by then. But for now, the point is this. Their accomplishments don't silence yours. And you, in these moments, need to go back and look and see what you've accomplished. Because you've accomplished something. Make a list. And even if it's small, we're not looking at each individual one and saying, ah, this is Mount Everest. We're looking at quantity. How many things have you accomplished? Any number greater than one is amazing. You are alive today. Tick. Here's one. I'm alive. Here's two. I sat down and wanted to write. I intended to. I believed I could. And I tried. There's two. You got any others? You didn't crash your car on the way to work. Why don't these things count as much as that asshole and their big stupid advance they can't shut up about or their big cover reveal for a book that is frankly ugly? Why? Yeah, I understand that you want to be there. You want to be that published author. You want to have that single out. You want to be blown up on SoundCloud. Do kids still blow up on SoundCloud? Let's roll with it. You know, like you want to be there. I get it, but you're taking steps to get there, right? Like that's the thing you're doing. So you're you're angry at somebody who who is further ahead of you in a marathon 
Well, just keep running and you'll get to where they're at relatively at some point. Just keep running rather than stopping and seeing them run ahead of you. Just keep going and don't give up and you'll get where you need to be. Don't run faster. Don't run harder. Don't run to prove them wrong. Don't run to tell them to go fuck off. Run because you want to run this marathon. Because the winning the marathon for you is important. Because you want to be the goal. You want to get the thing at the end result for you. Not because of them. Critical difference. Keep going. Don't give up. On we go. Question eight. None of my beta readers liked my draft. What do I do? Clearly the answer is weep openly. No, that is not. That's not it. Okay, none of your beta readers like your draft. Here's what you're going to do. You can do two things. One, uh, you, you can push ahead forward and publish. That's a choice. Nothing's stopping you. Beta readers are not the gatekeepers. They're just people who read your book to give you some opinions and feedback. They didn't like your book. Okay, maybe somebody else will. That's, that's a roll of the dice. It's worth it. Here's what else you can do. Take their feedback. What didn't they like? The whole thing? The whole, whole thing? Or, you know, are we looking at specifics? They didn't like my character. They didn't like my plot. Even if they break it down to like that core stuff, you can go write it again. Fix it. If you don't know how to fix it, ask for help. But you could fix it. Every single part of this, right up until the moment you publish, is fixable. Yeah, it can be irritating, it can be frustrating, it can be embarrassing, but it's fixable. Okay? It is not the end of the world, even if it feels like it is. You just keep going. Now, let's, let's spin this around and come at this from the other side. If, for some reason, your beta readers didn't like your draft but can't put a finger on the specific thing or things as to why they didn't like their draft, it is also possible that you have shitty beta readers. That they, they're used to only saying, it's good, I liked it, or whatever, and then never having to give more detail, and they feel ill-equipped or are ill-equipped to do so. In that case, find some different beta readers and then make an informed decision. But chances are, if you're getting a lot of feedback about things being a problem, go work on it. If you're getting a lot of just blanket statements that aren't helpful, you need more information. On we go. Question nine. What should I do if I keep worrying about my opening pages being any good? Well, how would you like to handle this problem? One option is to go get a second opinion on the state of your opening pages. I'm literally sitting right here. You can go to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com and one of the things we can talk about are your opening pages. That's an option. Simple. Next. If that does not appeal to you. If you're just worried, what is it you're worried about? Really, say it out loud. I'm worried that my opening pages aren't any good and dot, 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 fill in the blank. I'm worried that if I go try to submit this to an agent, my agent, you know, nobody will sign me because my pages aren't very good. Okay, legit. I hear you. That's good. Voice your fear. Express it as a sentence. See if it has some kind of coherence to it. Because if it's just a nebulous sense of like, I don't know if it's any good because I don't know if I'm any good. 
Well, that that's a that's a much hairier, thornier, bigger problem that can't exactly be solved by me yapping into this microphone right this second. If you're really worried about your opening pages based on the quality of those pages, get a second opinion on the pages. If you're worried about your opening not being any good because you think you're a shitty writer, you need to go work on your self-confidence. You need to go get somebody who's going to big you up, somebody who's going to pat you on the back and say, like, you're doing great, keep going. That's that's kind of the whole point here. If you keep worrying about it, no matter what, though, if no matter what you can't seem to shake it, get feedback. Feedback where somebody who isn't you, who isn't being incentivized by you to tell you what you want to hear, somebody who can you know detach themselves from the process and give you something effective to think about, chew on, or work on, matters. Most people spend way too long hammering pages that have long since not only been like hammered flat and dead, but like deader than dead. If I, here's an example. There are some people who bring me the same chapter like five times. I don't mind, but I really wish we could just move on. Why? Because I don't want to see the same chapter five times. Because chances are you're, polishing the wrong parts it doesn't need to be perfect there is no perfect it's just a chapter let's move on and teach you the skills you need rather than try to demonstrate in one singular contextless moment that you wrote this paragraph real good (sighs) let's use a not writing example okay you go to the gym you're working out We can spend all day on the treadmill so that you know that you've effectively moved your right leg on a treadmill perfectly. And yes, if we keep practicing just the treadmill and just your right leg on the treadmill, you will get into some kind of shape that you want to get into because you will have trained your right leg in this one particular instance very effectively. However, if your overall goal was to improve your total body's fitness or your strength, or your core, or your cardio, or anything else, you cannot keep doing just one exercise over and over and over and over again. There's other stuff to do. Don't get hung up on the beginning. It's important, yes. But chances are, the whole thing is important, and the whole thing needs work. Your opening can be strengthened, but your opening only is there to serve and facilitate getting deeper into the story. Don't get hung up on having perfect pages and letting everything else kind of wait in limbo or something until it's time. Keep moving. Get feedback. Good question. On we go. Questions from Chad, anyone? Shall we march on? Let us march. Question 10. What's something I don't know about marketing my fantasy novel? Well, could be a lot of things. How about... How about fantasy 
overall is incredibly saturated, but only saturated in certain ways. So there's a lot of people writing fantasy novels. Tons. But there's a lot of people writing fantasy novels only in certain flavors because they're popular. And it's sort of a weird little feedback loop. Some books are popular. People read them. They are inspired by them. They try to write books like them. Urban fantasy detectives started like this. A few people wrote them. They became very popular. Other people read them, tried to write their own stuff, and it reinforces that loop that, oh, you want to write fantasy? Urban fantasy is really popular. Same with high fantasy. Long time ago, some old white dude was like, here's a set of stories based on the mythologies I've been studying and all the languages I know. And then everybody else is like, I'm going to try and do the same thing. But that's not the sum total. Fantasy isn't only the popular parts. There's whole piles of fantasy that aren't. There's fantasy romance, fantasy mystery, fantasy thriller, fantasy horror. Fantasy coming of age. Fantasy western. Any of that. When you're marketing, don't get hung up on trying to sound like everybody else, but also stand out from everybody else at the same time. For instance, let's talk about our high fantasy novel. Big Quest, Kings, Medieval Shit. Most people are going to talk about the quest and the character as if high fantasy isn't dominated by quests and characters. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But everybody's trying to stand out by talking about the same things. The quest, the character. When you're marketing your fantasy novel, you're not limited by anything other than you're here to talk about your fantasy novel, not like you know, your mom's apple crisp recipe or something. So once you stay within at least the box of fantasy novel, you're fine. But you don't have to talk about the quest. You don't have to talk about the character. You want to talk about the darkness that could swallow the world if the main hero doesn't manage to, like, make it to geography class and pass his final? Sure. Cool. You want to talk about, you know how every quest seems to involve a family that at first doesn't like each other but grows to respect each other through the not only the trials of combat but the trials of personal sacrifice. Awesome. You want to talk about how, you know, the thing that defeated all the dragons were hot air balloons? Cool. You can talk about whatever the hell you want. And you can talk about it in an enthusiastic way by itself if you really wanted to. That hot air balloon with dragons sounds rad. You're not bound by what everybody else is doing. And you're not limited by trying to sound like everybody else. You can come at your fantasy novel, any novel, in any number of ways. You want to market your romance novel, not based on the steamy sexiness of your rather pedestrian, dull, heteronormative relationship? Sure, go ahead. Sure. You can do whatever you want. You are more free in your marketing than you give yourself credit. You just need to be willing to try approaches that aren't typical. And for a lot of people, that's uncomfortable space because there's a lot of unknown and what feels like a lot of risk. I don't know if that's a really good idea. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to play it safe. That's usually the first problem. 
Not that you always have to be out on the bleeding edge trying something risky, but you also don't want to like hold too far back because you're not gaining anything. Be more free. Be willing to fail. Be willing to try something different, and you'll be surprised with the results. On we go. Question 11. If a publisher or a contest doesn't have submission guidelines, what should I do? Submission guidelines are the set of rules that tell somebody how to participate with them, how to engage with them. For a publisher, submission guidelines are a thing like, I want it in this font with this margins and this size font and put it in this file format, double space it, triple space it, whatever. It tells the the person who wants to engage with them how to best correspond. Contests, same way. That's going to be stuff like word camp. That's going to be stuff like topic. That's going to be like, hey, do this, but don't do that. It's just going to outline how to have this this sort of transactional relationship. If you go to the website or whatever and they're not posted, and if you um, ask them about it and they don't reply, and I'm not talking like like they tell you anything's fine, we'll get to there in a minute, but like you, you get crickets, you, you don't hear anything from them, please consider not submitting because they're disorganized. And if they can't take two seconds to point out, here's how I want my submissions received, chances are the rest of the organization doesn't fare much better. But if it's just an issue of, you know, you hear from them, but they give you an answer that is unclear, like, ah, anything's good. You see that in a lot of newer publishers, smaller presses and contests where they they didn't really know what they got into, but they wanted to do it anyway. Like I see a lot of anthology people want to do an anthology, but they, they don't understand what that involves. Like the number of submissions and the timeline and the printing and the this, that, and the other. They, they just want to have like a big compendium of stuff. And they don't have submission guidelines. So what do you do? You either make them. The better people will make them. They'll ask for help or they'll look at other people and just kind of do whatever. Or you, the author... Act on submission guidelines of your own accord. I don't recommend doing this all the time, but if you're looking for some default base, good enough submission guidelines, let it be these. Uh, Microsoft Word is your preferred uh, file format. Maybe PDF exported out of Word. Maybe, but most of the time it's going to be a Word doc or a DOCX file. It's going to be standard Word margins, don't touch them. It's going to be double-spaced. It's either going to be Times New Roman or some simple, easy-to-read uh, sans-serif font. And you're probably looking at at least 12, maybe 13, 14 at most size font, double-spaced. Page numbers are either going to go in the uh, upper right and maybe they will include uh, your last name or the title of the book or both so it would be name dash or slash or space title dash or slash or space page number or centered in the bottom centered on the footer 
Either one of those is fine. I like it in the upper. Some people like it in the lower. Do what looks good to you, but be consistent about it. Uh, and generally, don't number your first page. Those guidelines by themselves will get you through a lot of doors. But strongly consider places that don't have submission guidelines, and when you ask them about them, they kind of give you a response to indicate that they have no idea what you're talking about. Those are not places you want to like put your time and effort into. What a great question. On we go. Question 12. What exhausts you most about soon-to-be first-time authors? Other than the fact that soon-to-be first-time makes it sound like these people haven't even started, and I'm not entirely sure of whom you are speaking, I think you're talking about authors, people who are not yet published for the first time, but they're, they're about to be or soon-to-be. If that's who you're talking about, here are two things that exhaust me. One, they don't make decisions after a certain point. Like we already struggled with decision-making in the, in the creative process. I don't know what happens in the story. This could go, that could go. What do I do about this? What do I do about that? But after it's written, there are still decisions to make. How am I going to publish this? How am I going to market it? Do I go this way? Do I go that way? Do I send it this way? Do I send it to them? Do I do this? How, how often? The decisions don't stop. And I think for a lot of people, there's a real sense of exhaustion because we just made all these decisions to get a, a hundred thousand words out the door. Now I got to make all these new decisions. Yes. Yes, you do. And I think people don't respect or pay enough attention to that post finishing pre submitting pre publishing space where they're tired, it is completely, totally, 1,000 million percent okay after you finish writing your book to take like a whole ass month off and not do anything with it. It's okay. That's not going to be for everybody, but some people benefit from that. Other people don't. Other people want to strike while the iron is hot. Respect. Both are valid. What's exhausting, though, is that they stop thinking. They stop making decisions. And as you progress farther along in production, as you start getting nearer the end of the book, you need to transition your thinking, not from, oh my God, I have to revise chapter 12, and oh my God, what about chapter 25? But okay, no matter how I revise these things, I'm going to market it like this. I want to talk about this when I write the query or when I write that first blurb. I want to make sure I focus on that. Those are things to focus on. They're the next things to write. They're the next steps. And one of the most exhausting things in the world when dealing with soon-to-be-published people is that they've not done that because it feels almost like we've we've gone back to square one. Like we did all this work to get the book done, but now when it comes to marketing or, or publication, we're back at zero because you've given no thought. You don't need a whole plan. I'm not asking you to like storm the French beaches and win the war. I'm I'm just asking if you've given any thought. That's one thing. Other thing. They've done none. Zero, less than zero, itty bitty, itty bitty bits of audience building 
And then they'll say something like, I hate marketing. Makes, makes me want to throw a pillow across the room. You have to market. You have to. I don't care how you're going to publish. I don't care what you're publishing. I don't care what genre it is. You have to market. And that means challenging those preconceived notions. That means taking a look at who you talk to and how you talk to them and how you talk about yourself and how you feel about yourself and coming to terms with multiple things, maybe messy, maybe not. But people dig their heels in and get frustrated and angry and then lash out. I get yelled at a lot because somebody's having a little bit of a moment because they feel like they're not good enough. Now, I don't mind getting yelled at. I've been yelled at by... Oof, I've been yelled at by a lot of people for a lot of things. But if you're angry at yourself that you didn't, you know, way back on chapter five, start marketing already, you're not helping anybody. Start marketing today. Start talking to people about your book. Start talking about being excited. Sign up for that newsletter now so you don't have to worry about it later. Do something. Take action. Make a step. That's the other thing that exhausts me about authors they're great up to the writing part and then we go back to zero you don't have to too many people do there's a question over here in chat how do i get better at writing pensive emotional beats in young adult fiction without my main character sounding like an adult i.e boy he's so good at being introspective for a 17 year old it's a great question that's super legit because you yourself are not 17, so how do I sound like a 17-year-old? Remember this. As you work backwards in age from where you're at to where your character is, it's not necessarily the complexity of the thought that declines, though that, that is a secondary effect. What intensifies and simplifies is the urgency and the emotion underneath the thought. So if you're having a character who's 17 and let's say you're not, I'm, I'm 45. So for me to find out what I felt like at 17, I'm not going to stop and think about like what I, cause now I'll think two or three steps ahead. Well, if I say this or do this, this will happen and then that'll happen. Whereas at 17, I did not give a shit about that. I was thinking more from that emotional space of like, oh shit, I feel this thing. Pensive and emotional are not polar opposites. Don't confuse pensive for cerebral. Pensive just means you spend a lot of time and space thinking. Cerebral is that level of complexity. Ah, the mental chess game. I will say this and they will say that and then this will happen. And you don't want to mastermind it. You've got to let your character make some mistakes. You've got to let your character be and operate from that emotional position because they're 17 and their brain is half developed. As, you, as your character age recedes from your age, think more emotionally. What is the emotion the character feels in this moment? How can I articulate it to some degree? Not to its entirety, not to its entirety with an awareness of consequences. Maybe a consequence or two. You know, oh, if I, if I take the car tonight, my dad's going to be really mad, so I better, like, make an excuse. 
Simple planning, simple, easy, as opposed to, nah, I'm a grown ass person. I can ask for the car and I'll get it because I'm a person and we respect independence in this house. I don't know, something like that. Simplify it down. They can still be pensive. They can still spend a lot of time and space worrying about a thing, but it's almost always going to be more emotionally reactive than deeply planned. And then center on it. Here's the beat. It's this. They're not necessarily going to be long beats. We don't have to spend a lot of sentences to, 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 to typing them out. But we want to craft and shape the story in such a way that we hit that emotional note. You'll still sound like an adult to some degree because of your writing style because you're not a 17-year-old person. But your character won't sound that way. There's also some part of this that's overthinking because it's, all, it's very situational. Because you're writing YA, so to some degree there's an expectation, especially in first person, that you're going to be a little bit brainier than everybody else because you've got to like carry a story in first person. But by and large, you don't want to have like these incredible consequential decisions made where like you're seeing five moves ahead. That's what defeats, that's what kind of like pokes holes in the YA-ness. YA-ness? That doesn't sound right. That's what, that's what pokes holes in the YA structure. Care, people write YA as if they're just smaller adults. Like, I'm 17, but it's sort of like when you watch a TV show and like clearly the actor's in their 30s, but they're in high school. You know they're not 17. They're, they've got, you know, they've got all their shit together and they're balding. Like, that's not it. So what you want to do is instead of thinking about like, wow, here's the, here's the five things that'll happen... Your character's not thinking that. Your character's operating from that emotional place to try and solve a need or immediately resolve a problem with minimal impact to themselves and expedience. Nailing that stuff down. Basically think about all the dumb shit you did and why you did it the way you did it. Not so much for the specific contextual reason because you might not remember. But take a look at your own behavior. Why did you do it that way? Ah, I wasn't thinking. Ah, I was selfish. I thought that would be cool. That's it. Can you get there? Can you sit in that space? Because that's going to be good enough. If it was good enough for you, it's going to be good enough for your character. You can solve a lot of YA problems with character's an idiot. Character's 17. Don't know any better. Wasn't thinking. Got selfish. Got stupid. Got horny. Solves a lot of problems. Great question. On I go, though, to our 13th and final question. I'm going back to a story I abandoned. Where do I start? Where did you leave off? Carry a story in first person is a mind-blowing thought. Yeah, let me answer the 13th question, and I'll say more about carrying in first person. Um, I'm going back to a story I abandoned. Where do I start? Where did you leave off? If this is a matter of I got 30 pages in and quit, start over entirely. Doesn't matter. Doesn't even matter how long ago you abandoned it. You walked away for some reason. Why? Where? Was it because this is the point where it got tough and you had to make decisions and the idea stopped being cool because you didn't think it through? 
Did you abandon it because life happened and now you can't get past that moment? You can start anywhere. Chances are, if you're under 15,000 words, start over from scratch. It's going to solve a lot more problems than it's going to fix. If you're talking about something where you were like 75% of the way done the story, Go back to that moment you abandoned, the last thing you wrote. Read it a few times. What's happening? What are the characters doing? What are they trying to resolve? What problem do they have? And what do they need to do to move forward with it, either to resolve it or get closer to resolving it or dealing with consequences or whatever? Get right back to that last moment. Read it fresh. Think about all the things that could happen to make it cooler. Okay, so it doesn't matter that I left this story three years ago. My characters are, uh, they're in a train and the killer is bearing down on them. And okay, so I have literally no attachment to this because I wrote it years ago and I'm just coming back to it. You're, you can fucking do anything you want. What is something cool that these people could do in this moment? Not, what did I try to think of two years ago? God, I can't remember. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're here now. What's a cool thing that could happen? Do that. Okay, so if that cool thing happens, all right, so the, the killer's advancing on them. They've got the big knife, and everybody's kind of backed up against the seats. One of them could kick the knife out of the guy's hand. Great. And then what happens? Well, then there could be like this big wrestling match for the knife, and the killer could be, you know, thrown to the ground, and some people could run, and some people fight. Great, cool. What could happen? Well, the guy doing the wrestling clearly has to get stabbed because this is a John example, so we're going to have it be a little bit more active. Great. So we kill Fred from Scooby-Doo. Then what happens? And you just build the story from what could happen to what does happen, and if that happens, then what's next? And you just walk forward until you're done the draft. And it's going to feel weird and it's not going to read the same because you've got this new section you've just attached to this old thing and you're going to have to go back and try to spruce up the beginning. And that's fine, but that's a different question and a different story. But generally, uh, if you are not very far in, like... Usually my cutoff is 20,000 words or less, 10,000, 15,000, or 20,000. If you're somewhere around there and there's no more after that, start over from scratch. If you are between 20 and 60, 20 and 70, 20 and 80, pick up from wherever you left off and just take us in a new direction. Go from there. Don't try to worry about going backwards and re... Uh, da, 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 da. We'll deal with the beginning again later. For now, just move forward and keep going. That is the easiest way to do what you need to do. There are other ways. They're going to be more complex. They're going to feel frustrating. They're going to require you to make more decisions and not necessarily get back to writing promptly. There's a time and a place for that. This is not one of those times and places. Okay? I want to go backwards to answer that question about carrying a story in first person. Because that's a thing. So let me do this. A first-person narrator, when they're narrating a story and it's the narrator and the reader, and the reader is both in, it, in the character's head and outside the character's head, 
and therefore they are sort of like floating close to the narrating character. The story, whatever it might be, is both happening to the main character, that's outside their view, but it is also equally being reacted to internally in the first person. Oh my God, life is happening. What am I going to do? And the first, the, the narrating character's job is to both experience the story, be a character in the book, but also to express it to the reader. It's a really kind of like get your head around it moment. I should at some point probably sit down and detail at length what first person really potentially means, but that would require like a very active Socratic audience because it's a back and forth rather than just a, here are all my thoughts because that just, it, it's harder that way. First person is a lot harder than everybody gives it credit. First person is a lot more deep. First person possesses a lot more crunchiness. So does third person. So does second person. It's just that they're crunchy and, and deep in different ways. But yeah, your first person story is carried rather than developed. That's a whole, man, that's a whole thing to get your head around. I learned about that in school and it blew my mind. It really did. Because all of a sudden my first person narrator was no longer the sole distributor of story. And it was as much about the reaction of that person to everything else as it was that character just doing stuff. Changed the whole way I framed stories. Changed the whole way I watched TV. It's awesome. Yeah, there's probably, yeah, there's definitely a stream there more than podcasts. Yeah, good stuff. Any other questions about any other things else? On we march. I mean, we'll just march to the outro. But before that, I do want to plug, where is it? I do want to plug the uh, stream later tonight. At 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, five common manuscript issues. I'll be right back here uh, to talk about five things you're doing wrong with your manuscript and how to fix them. And that's stuff like overthinking and underdeveloping and overwriting and stuff like that, where it's not specifically like sentence-based, but it's concept-based. Because if you can solve those problems at that level, it makes the writing a lot easier to deal with. But that is, that is later tonight. Uh, so if you're listening to this on the podcast feed, because this will go on the podcast feed this afternoon, uh, you're going to get another long-ass one later tonight. Hooray. And both uh, this chat and this uh, stream this evening uh, will be on YouTube tomorrow. I'll post them both. Today's Tuesday. I will post them both on Wednesday. So yeah, uh, first, hang on. There's another thing here. First person reaction plus YA urgency plus emotion is huge. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's the formula to YA first person. First per, uh, reactions of first person plus the urgency of young adult uh, framing plus emotion and character is how you write YA fiction in an engaging way. Yeah, that's crazy. That's, yeah, there's a whole discussion to be had about the nature of reaction and urgency and emotion because they're not the same thing, even though they all sound the same. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. You, you, you think about that. It'll be good for you. You'll get there. It's a lot. That's, that's a lot. Probably a whole stream there too now that I think about it. You're very, very welcome. Okay. I'm going to get out of here because I still have more work to do. So to the outro we go.
thank each and every single one of you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your comments. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for letting me talk about uh, coaching and writing and believing in yourself and getting organized and beta readers and arc readers and first person young adultness and bokeh and a ton of other stuff. Thank you so, so much. It was wonderful. Uh, I will be right back here in your eyes and in your ears in only a matter of a few hours at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I'll be right back here at twitch.tv slash John Helps You Write Better for a stream about common manuscript mistakes. Uh, and that'll all be available not only on the podcast feed, which you can find out at any, just anywhere you get podcasts, search for John Helps You Write Better, and on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash John Adamus tomorrow. Uh, if you liked this and anything else and want to support it, head over to patreon.com slash John Helps You Write Better. And if you're listening to this, watching this on YouTube, on what is now Wednesday. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and click the button for notifications and do all the YouTube bits. Oh, okay, back to work I go. It's another long day. We're not done yet. We still keep going. All power to all people. Don't give up. You're good enough. And I will talk to you very, very soon. See ya!